Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Proverbs 17, verse 21. Hear now the word of God. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we come to you as your hungry children. You tell us in your word that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would feed us with Christ, the manna from heaven. We pray that you would uh, open the mouths of faith in our lives, that we would consume Christ heartily, and that in so doing, you would nourish us and strengthen us, that you would impart unto us the convicting power of your law, that you would grant unto us by your grace the ability, O Lord, to repent of our sin, that you would grant unto us the wisdom and the humility to heed the instruction of your law, that we might desire greater conformity to Christ, and that you would give us great reason, O Lord, to sing forth your praises as you alone are creator, redeemer, sustainer, and in the end, O Lord, our heavenly Father, who feeds us so well that we might have all of these blessings in Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Our culture, I think, uh, encourages us to make the most of life. And one of the ways that it tells us to do so is that we have to get out there and we have to promote ourselves. We see this, for example, in the media. So-called journalists on both sides of the political spectrum have uh, turned away from the business of journalism, about being the mediators, if you will, of public discourse. And instead, they uh, go out and they brand themselves so that you, you focus your attention upon them and their message rather than upon the news. Uh, they, they, they turn their faces and their voices into brands. The world tells us, for example, to establish a presence on social media so that we can make a name for ourselves. This is something that I I continually warn seminarians about, is that there's this uh, desire sometimes that I see in some where as soon as they get there, they want to start putting information out on the internet. They want to start writing things. They want to start recording things and posting it out there for everyone to see, to read, and to hear And now while the world may encourage us to go out, for example, and to do such things, the world also tells us that in the face of things that don't go the way that we want, uh, we should go out there and make our opinions and our voices known. We should protest the actions of governments and institutions. We should go out to the streets and make a lot of noise. If we're insulted, we should insult back. 
We should not turn the other cheek, but rather we should ensure that people understand where we stand. And if it's something that we don't like, we let them know about it. And if it's somebody that's going to insult us, we insult them first. Well, much, I think, of the behavior that we see in this respect in the world comes from a lot of angry people on both sides of the spectrum, on the right and on the left. And it often strikes me that they have a lack of joy, and so they want the world to know about it. Yet Solomon paints a very different picture when he here describes the life of the wise Christian. He describes a life fundamentally marked by joy. He also describes a life that is marked by peace and quiet. And sometimes, even in adverse circumstances, a life that is marked by an absence of speech, even silence in the face of such Uh, difficulties. So in order for us to understand what I've called the joyful and quiet life, I think we first need to understand what Solomon has to say about how the life of the fool is a tumultuous one. It's one marked by noise. It's one marked by anger. It's one marked by strife. And when we see how fools act, I think then we have a better index as well as a capacity to be able to appreciate what it means to live wisely what it means to live joyfully, what it means to live quietly. In the end, I think what we have to see, what Solomon sets forth here, is that the the, the Christian, the wise Christian, finds contentment in Christ. And it is that contentment in Christ that allows us to live out the answer of the first question of the shorter catechism. It enables us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Only those who find contentment in Christ will find joy uh, and no matter the circumstances will know peace, even perhaps when it seems as if the world is falling apart. So what we want to do first there is we want to survey the, the, the life of the tumultuous fool. And then secondly, we want to take a look at what uh, Solomon has to say about the joyful and quiet life of the wise. So let's give our thought here to the tumultuous life of the fool. Solomon begins by observing how, uh, how much heartache there is in the heart of, of parents when they give birth and raise foolish children. He says here in verse 21 and then in 25, he says, He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Or verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Now think about this, these two proverbs within the context of Solomon's book. It's a context that paints uh, the picture of a mother and father sitting down with their child to impart unto the child wisdom. Remember, all the way back in Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. And so here what you see is you see parents earnestly, sincerely, wholeheartedly pouring forth the wisdom of God into the life of their child. And rather than seeing a harvest of wisdom and prudence come forth, instead they see nothing but thorns and thistles rising out of the heart of their child. And so what Solomon says here is he says that a fool, a fool has strife in his life because he gives strife 
and consternation, sadness, and heartache to his parents. In other words, the life of a fool is marked by tumult. He's foolish, and he sows strife. And this is something that is very grievous even to the hearts of parents as they see their child wander off into the weeds. Such a child, I think we could say, brings unending heartache to parents. But what specific type of misconduct does Solomon have in mind? Now keep in mind, remember, Solomon's wisdom here is observational. Uh, It's not, uh, you know, a black and white type of observation that he makes. And so when he gives us an example of the type of strife and foolish conduct that marks somebody who rejects the ways of God, he's just giving an observational illustration here. And so he says this in verse 23. He says, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So here a fool is interested in conducting evil, in sowing strife by perverting justice. And so the foolish child engages in bribery, which reveals a number of things about the child's character. You know, he has no fear of the Lord. He thinks that nobody can see what he does. You know, so if he's willing to accept the bribe, He thinks that so long as nobody else but the one who bribes him knows about the bribe, then he acts completely in secret. And he thinks that he acts to his advantage. Even if this means that he tilts the scales of justice in favor of the wicked, so long as that he financially prospers from it, then it's fine for him to do so. But what he forgets is that he forgets to fear the Lord. He forgets that God sees all, hears all, and knows all. He thinks that just because his fellow man does not see anything, that God as well is ignorant of his evil. And yet, what does Solomon tell us in Proverbs just a few chapters back in chapter 15, verse 3? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. If the the foolish child was actually wise, he would fear the Lord and he would want to live righteously even if nobody was watching. Perhaps you've heard this description of what integrity is. Integrity is who you are when nobody's watching. Well, such is the nature of the fool is that the fool has no integrity because when nobody is watching, he just ends up engaging in evil. He sows strife. He creates strife in the hearts of his parents. He sows strife uh, in the community by accepting bribes and perverting justice. How and in what way might the fool twist justice towards his own gain? Verse 26, to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. In this case, the fool accepts a bribe to bring about the conviction of somebody who is innocent of wrongdoing. And in fact, the text doesn't just simply say innocent, but rather the righteous. In other words, somebody who has fulfilled the law. And nevertheless, he twists and pulls on the scales of justice so that he can punish the righteous, all so that he can financially uh, benefit from such evil. Now, the most famous, of course, uh, such an act of evil was Judas's betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
Jesus suffered at the hands of false accusers, those who suborned perjury against him, both during his trial as well as even after his resurrection, when the Jewish leaders told the the guards of the tomb, here, here's some money, tell people that the disciples came and stole his body. Yet in the face of this type of, of conduct, misconduct, we should say, in the face of this treachery, in the face of this sin, How did Jesus respond to the false accusations? How did he respond to the strife and the tumult that the wicked fools were trying to heap upon him? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and following, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's a sense in which we can say what Peter was describing here is the resolute confidence that Jesus Christ had in his heavenly father, that even in the face of being reviled, even in the face of being falsely accused of all sorts of sin and blasphemy, Jesus did not respond in kind. And in fact, far from respond in kind, the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was even silent. In Mark chapter 15, verses 2 and following, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and then Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. What we see here is that Jesus quite obviously embodies wisdom in the flesh. And that unlike the fool who continually sows strife, kicks up the dust of conflict, twists and perverts the truth to his own benefit, sows heartache into the very souls of his parents, in the face of such activity, Jesus, when he receives, uh, when he's on the receiving end of the injustice, he doesn't respond. He's simply silent. And this gives us, I think, a foundation from which we can reflect, secondly, upon the joyful and quiet life of the wise. And that Solomon shows us that the wise person casts his sight upon a very different thing in contrast with the fool. He says in verse 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Now again, remember, remember the broader scope of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom isn't simply some sort of abstract thing. Some sort of abstract ideal that, uh, you know, very intelligent people give thought to. But rather, it's the fear of the Lord about how to act in a prudent manner when right and wrong may not be clear. 
It's a fear of the Lord that says it is better to seek shelter in God's law and in his instruction than in one's own thinking. But most importantly, when he says the discerning sets his face towards wisdom, it is another way of saying he sets his face towards God. Because ultimately, where does wisdom originate? 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. When Solomon desired wisdom, he turned his face towards God in prayer. And he said, I am but a child and I am ill-equipped to be able to lead your people. You have to give me the wisdom that I so desperately need. And God answered and abundantly poured out his spirit of wisdom upon Solomon. So notice the the, the big, huge contrast here between the way of the fool and the way of the wise. The way of the wise, the discerning, sets his face towards wisdom. He seeks after God. Solomon sought wisdom in prayer, and God gave him wisdom hand over fist. And it's interesting, uh, I, I, I don't know who chose the hymns, if it's Carol, great, if it was Alan, great. But I planned on quoting this hymn, even though we're going to close with it this evening. So it's perfect dovetail. But I think that the way that Solomon's pursuit of wisdom uh, could be summarized is in those in those lines from be thou my wisdom or sorry, be thou my vision, be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord, thou my great father and thy Uh, And I, thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. I think we could rephrase Solomon's proverb here when he says, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom. When When he says, does God so consume your horizon that it's, he so fills your vision that he is all that you see? That he is your soul's desire. That his wisdom is what you desire above all else. That's what Solomon says. Unlike the fool, the wise sets his face towards pursuing wisdom. He seeks the face of God. And what we ultimately know from the rest of scripture is to seek the face of God and his wisdom is ultimately to seek the face of Christ. You know, these are two passages that we can say are our lodestar, our navigation point that show us where the goal of wisdom ultimately is and that what Proverbs sets forth in general terms, the Apostle Paul gives us with pinpoint precision when he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God. It is Christ who is our wisdom. Colossians 2.3, it is in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that when Solomon says the discerning sets his face towards wisdom, he's ultimately saying the discerning sets his face towards Christ. We seek the face of Christ. There's a huge difference, therefore, between the tumultuous ways of the fool, the one who sows strife and heartache and injustice and deceit, and the one who seeks the face of Christ. I think we could say that the fool not only does not look to Christ, 
But there in the latter half of verse 24, the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. He's always looking to the horizon, but he's not looking for Christ. He's always looking for the next possession, the next opportunity for deception, the next thing that he can take. He's always looking, but in the end, never seeing. He's always wanting, but never having. He's always taking, but never possessing. The fool is always restless, which is why his eyes are always set on the horizon of this world. Whereas the wise person sets his face upon Christ, and there in the face of Christ, he finds peace and contentment. Verse 22, a joyful heart is good medicine but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. See, when, when the wise person pursues the wisdom of God in Christ, our God is faithful to fill our hearts with joy. We can even counterintuitively find joy, whether in times of plenty or even perhaps in times of want, in times of trial, which is why James, for example, can say in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not that James is a masochist. He's not saying you should seek out pain, seek out discomfort, but rather he's saying that even in the midst of the tumult caused by the wicked, we can find joy as we pursue the wisdom of God in the face of Christ. In other words, there is something that transcends this earth that gives us the ability not simply to endure the sufferings of this world, the sufferings of the Christian life, but as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, to be more than conquerors in the midst of them. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, one of the things that uh, often seemingly can crush, can crush the spirit. You know, the crushed spirit dries up the bones is the, is the, is the ever heavy and dark presence of death. You know, how could you possibly find joy in the midst and in the face of death? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went and conducted the funeral service for my grandmother. And uh, there we were. It was, it was hot as blazes. <laughs> I was just sweating. Uh, it's, the, it's one of the first times I've just completely soaked through a shirt. And uh, as I was standing there waiting for the burial service to begin, a man in a suit walked up. And I had never met him before. And he, too, was just sweating. So I felt bad for him. I was like, here, get under this, uh, this tent thing. You know, stand in the shade. And as it turns out, he was the hospice care doctor in the extended care facility that my grandmother was staying in. And he was the one who, and when he found out that my grandmother was a Christian, knelt with her and prayed with her. Because among many other things, he said he was so impressed with her faith in Christ. 
And he even, much to my ignorance, I didn't know that this went on, he said that, he said that hospital personnel went out of their way when they did not have my grandmother as a patient to seek her out, to spend time with her because they were so impressed with her faith in Christ and the joy that she had as she was on her deathbed. Now, this is not to say that every single moment there as she was waiting to die was one of sheer joy and utter peace. I mean, like all people, I know that she had her ups and downs, but the fact that here, this man would come to a funeral on a day that was blazing hot and that he was sweating to tell me something like this brought joy to our family in the face of death. Even in the face of adversity, God can impart to the wise joy, as counterintuitive as that might seem. The wise Christian can rejoice at all times, whether in times of plenty or in times of want, because God, through his spirit, pours his love and his wisdom and his joy into our hearts. The spirit gives us his fruit, among which, of course, is joy. And because the Christian knows that through all of these circumstances, whether in times of plenty or in want, that God is sanctifying us, that he's conforming us to the image of Christ, We can be filled with joy. It may be a painful moment, but nevertheless, we can rejoice in saying that, thank you, O Lord, because through this trial, you are drawing me closer to you. It's as C.S. Lewis used to say when he lectured on suffering, and it's something that he himself had eventually to live through with the death of his wife as she suffered from cancer is when he said that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pain. But by way of contrast, those who do not seek Christ's wisdom do not have the eyes of faith to see through the veil of appearances. They only see with the eyes of the flesh, not with the eyes of faith. Thus, as he says in the latter half of verse 22, a crushed spirit dries up the bones. The fool sows strife. The fool imparts heartache. The fool twists and perverts justice. And in the end, winds up with a crushed spirit that dries up his bones. It's only the wise that can behold the face of Christ. And that means that we can see past the appearances of what the fool does not see. In the face of tragedy, in the face of, it seems as if the world is just coming apart. By the eyes of faith, we can look into the heavens and we can see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling in the midst of his enemies. We know that Christ is sovereign over all and will hold all people account for their actions. This is one of the things that we have to be very careful at in this world. We cannot let the world rob us of that heavenly hope, the hope of the wise, the wise who sets his face towards wisdom, which in other words is saying, we who set our face to Christ. 
You know, one of the marks, I think, of both capitalism as well as Marxism is that both capitalism and Marxism have immanentized eschatologies. To put it in simpler terms, both capitalism and Marxism want to make heaven here on earth. Thy kingdom come is no longer about the gospel, but it's about the spread of prosperity where money can supposedly fix all the ails of, of the world, or the ailments of the world, or where government control of wealth and the means of production creates a just and equal society where each receives according to their needs. Such an eminentized view of heaven only looks to the horizon. It only looks as far as the horizon of this world. It does not look upon the world with the eyes of faith to see that there is more to this life than this world and that we await the Savior and the the, the coming forth of the new heavens and the new earth. So that when in this world there are wrongs and ills, people resort to argument, they resort to debate, they resort to violence, because for them this world is all that there is. So they have to find justice now and immediately so. But yet, how do the wise act in the face of such things? With the knowledge that Christ is seated in the heavens, reigning and ruling over all. Who who is also imparting by the Spirit joy and peace in the midst of the tumult of the world. Verse 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. See, the wise who look to Christ, we who set our uh, eyes towards the heavens where Christ is seated and there where Christ uh, embodies the wisdom that we so desperately need, we know that our lives are in the hands of God and that even in the face of false accusations, for example, we can keep our cool or even remain silent as Jesus did before his accusers. You know, how many Christians, how many Christians who in the past, say, 18 months have either taken to the streets in one form of protest or another, whether on the right or on the left, have taken Paul's counsel seriously, which I think has taproots here into Proverbs, when he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and following, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people dare I say, Democrat and Republican, whoever, for kings and for all who are in high positions, to what end that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Because the wise have set their eyes upon Christ as we seek wisdom. We do not set our eyes merely upon the horizon of this world, thinking that this world is all there is. And if it doesn't get done now and here, it ain't going to get done. So we got to take to the streets. No, we look to Christ. We've entrusted our lives into his hands. And therefore, when we pray, for example, for things in the world to change, we know that our prayers are not empty, but they are powerful. In the face of accusations against the church, our silence is not cowardice, but rather confidence in Christ. 
Our silence is an indifference. Our quiet lives aren't surrender in the, faces of e- in the face of evil. Rather, our silence and quiet lives are the fruit of placing our lives into the hands of Christ. Our silence and our peace is an admission that we know that mere human hands do not have the final word in any matter in this world. Our silence and our peace is a confidence in the word of God and our prayer uh, and prayer's power to move mountains is what we know that can change the world. Remember the nature of the Proverbs. Solomon is not saying that a Christian must always be silent. Again, this is observational wisdom. There may be times for action. But what Proverbs is saying here at this point is that one of the chief characteristics of the Christian is joy and silence, even in the face of accusations, even in the face of injustice. And even if there may be some circumstances that call for anger and a loud voice, we as wise Christians should probably speak less so that when we do speak, then we would speak words of wisdom words of truth and love. Recall what Solomon has said earlier in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Solomon here even gives advice to the fool as to whether or not the fool would listen. It's another story, but he says in verse 28, even a fool who keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. You've heard that version before in in our own context, right? You know, uh, don't open your mouth and confirm the fact that you are a fool. Remain silent and let people just think it, perhaps. But notice what lies here, even for the Christian, in terms of this advice is that being wise doesn't mean you never have a foolish thought. Rather, being wise means that when you have foolish thoughts, you're wise enough to keep your lips sealed. Beloved, coming back all the way to the beginning, when I said that what Solomon gives us is he gives us key counsel so that we can live out the the answer to the first question of the Shorter Catechism, so that we can uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. How can we do that? Well, we can do so by living quiet and joyful lives, even in the face of trial and tribulation, even in the face of false accusation. But the only way that we will have quiet and joyful lives is as he says there in verse 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom. That means that we must always set our face to Christ and pray that he would fill our hearts with joy, no matter the circumstances, that he would give us the wisdom to be able to remain silent and peaceful. And that if we have to speak, He would give us the wisdom as to what to say and when to say it. But, beloved, pray that God would fill us with the wisdom of Christ, that we would have joyful, peaceful lives, 
because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our vision and who fills the entire horizon of our lives. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you give unto us the wisdom of Christ, if only we ask. So often, O Lord, we do not have because we do not ask. Or when we pray for wisdom and then you place perplexing circumstances before us, circumstances that are challenging, difficult, for which there is no clear path, instead we, we talk to friends, we, we, we try to read books, we think about it, we look at the internet, and we fail to come to you in prayer. We fail to engage in meditation upon your word. We fail even to fast in the face of challenging circumstances, O oh Lord, when we know not what to do. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the wisdom and humility, that, that we would be discerning, that we would set our face towards wisdom, that we would set our face towards Christ, that we would meditate and soak up your law so that we would have hearts informed by your wisdom so that even if your word does not address our circumstances directly, we would have the compass of your word to guide us onto the path of righteousness and holiness. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for acting foolishly, for sowing strife and heartache into the hearts of our parents, for sowing discord, Lord, for at times twisting the truth to our own benefit. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to put aside our foolish ways and that above all else, you would be our vision, that you would fill our horizon and that we would desire nothing else but to please you and to glorify you forever. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.